but it's forced upon you because of the holiday. Uh, I know that's it's a downer. Good morning. <laughs> but I, I want you to be thinking of that when that is forced upon you, even when you're not genuinely in that spirit, because that is a really, really good dilemma that this week's song is written from. I want to jump into it. The song's author is Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Um, and uh, you can throw that picture up. Uh, he is, if you know like Longfellow Elementary, there's a ton of schools named after him. I learned a lot about him. I did not know his name before a couple weeks ago. Uh, but but uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was actually probably America's earliest celebrity, um, a world-renowned poet in his day. Uh, he had written uh, plenty of things. He was also an incredible translator and wrote, uh, translated a lot of uh, very famous works, Dante's comedy. He was the first one to translate into English. Really, really powerful stuff. Um, Charles Dickens in the UK uh, was an avid follower and fan of Wadsworth uh, Longfellow. I don't know which was his middle name. Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, was an outspoken fan of Longfellow. He was really a voice, uh, a celebrity voice in America um, a long, long time ago. And uh, he, he lived in what's now called the Longfellow House. It was, it was George Washington's military headquarters during the, the, the Revolutionary War. And, and Longfellow's family ended up uh, inheriting it, and, and they ended up living there. And um, descendants of the Mayflower, I mean, just like American all the way through. And, and uh, was this incredible author, an incredible poet, an incredible amount of success in this life, yet faced a great deal of hardship. His first wife passed away during childbirth, her and the child. Second wife, Frances Appleton, who he called Franny. Uh, they were married for 18 years. They had six children between them. Uh, she, she died of a house fire, an accidental house fire when her dress caught on fire. And, um, and he and the kids are trying to put it out. And he actually sustained um, burns all over his face, which is why he ends up growing this, this iconic beard. Um, to cover some of that up. That happened in 1861, the same year of the Civil War, when, for reference, 5% of the entire nation will become casualties. Um, he was a, a, a very strong uh, abolitionist, was, was fighting for, to abolish slavery. Um, he was a really big public voice of reunification before the Civil War and then throughout the Civil War of trying to bring both sides to the table and trying to reunify the country. And it's two years after uh, uh, Franny's death, um, and the entire two years, interesting, he, he fell into, not interesting, it's obvious, he fell into a deep depression uh, because, of, because of her death. Um, actually began struggling with, with drugs during that time. He, he was so depressed that he began worrying that his family was gonna put him in a insane asylum uh, because he just, he couldn't hide his depression. Um, and uh, he, he, he writes, uh, or he talks later about, about how Christmases weren't jolly anymore. That was for the children. They, they weren't for him anymore. Uh, and, and he didn't actually write for a couple years after her death. He turned to translating instead, but he felt he didn't have the inspiration, wasn't able to write anymore. And two years after her death, halfway through the Civil War, her, uh, their eldest son, Charles Longfellow, enlists against uh, Longfellow's wishes and is gravely injured in the Battle of Mine Run on December 2nd, 1863. Uh, it was uncertain if Charles would live or not, and he lay in a field hospital at uh, New Hope Church, was the name of the church that he was at. And 23 days later, 
So not being able to write for two years, it's Christmas Day, 1863, and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow sits down and writes this poem. It's originally called Christmas Bells and is later uh, written into a song. And the song is what we, we just sang a second ago, but on your card is actually the poem, which has a, a verse or two extra. Um, and it makes sense why it's been taken out for modern songs. If you don't know the context, it doesn't make sense. Uh, but, but I hope that you grasp this. I want to read this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I hear these, these, these carols of peace on earth, goodwill to men every year. Now, real quick, I'm going to point to it so we're all keeping in mind what he's referring to. This, this phrase of peace on earth, goodwill to men comes from Luke chapter 2, shortly after the birth of Jesus. I'm going to read it real quick in, in the King James Version, the same version that he would have read it in. It says, And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings and great joy, which shall be to all people. But unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of, of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known uh, abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child and all they had heard all that had heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds but mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising god for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them and glory to god in the highest and on peace goodwill toward men this is what uh, is, the, is the source of these Christmas carols which, which Longfellow is hearing when he hears these Christmas bells. I thought as now this day had come, the belfries of all Christendom, the bell towers of churches around the world had rung so long the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Every year we hear this. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolves from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. My whole life, he's saying, every year we've been hearing these same bells, these same carols, the same carol of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Can't hear them. Can't hear these carols over the thundering cannons in the south. It was as if an earthquake rent, ripped, rent is, is tearing a large piece of fabric. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent. A hearthstone is, your, is, is the stones in the fireplace that you, you burn on. And 
And around that time, it was actually considered to be the heart of the home, your hearthstone, your fireplace. Not only because it's what kept you warm and comfortable and alive in winter, but it's also where you cooked your food and fed your family. So as if an earthquake ripped the heart of the homes of an entire continent and made forlorn, made sad, made pitiful, the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bow my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, I didn't know this um, before we the last verse there. I didn't know this, but, but uh, there's almost like a whole language of, of bell towers, of, of church bells. Um, they have different bells. They play them differently to celebrate different things. I didn't realize this. I, I was very interested. There's, there's the, you know, there's the timekeeping bell. Uh, there's a, a way the bells are rung that just got played for the first time in 70 years. It's when a monarch dies. When, so in, in England, Queen Elizabeth. Um, and it's like they, they mute it kind of, they pat it. And so you, you hear it, but it doesn't ring out. It just kind of stops forever. And they, they, they do that. There's all these different bells that have different uh, holidays, different circumstances, what they tell people, or if they tell them, you know, invaders coming kind of thing. They, they have different messages. I didn't realize that. I just thought it was a big bell. Uh, and then on Christmas day, they add a bunch of smaller ones to it. And you can find some recordings online, but um, it just sounds a little bit like joyous chaos. I mean, it's, there's just so much happening, um, but it sounds very celebratory. And that's what he's hearing as he's sitting down in the midst of his grief, in the concern of his son, in his heart breaking over his nation divided. He's hearing those bells. And it's as if they're mocking the carols. It's as if this, this hate of the war of brother against brother is just fake. And so they're, they're ringing the Christmas bells because it's Christmas Day. But he says, we're not celebrating peace on earth. We're making it a mock. We're making a mockery of it. For hate is too strong. And yet, listen to this last verse. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. I don't think they played louder. I think they played louder in his heart, in his head. I think they played louder in his consciousness suddenly. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I was trying to title this sermon, and in the end I just titled it, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Um, it's a freebie. I was trying to think, I was saying that the, the, it's like the clash of faith when seeming reality doesn't meet. Uh, the tone deafness of faith in a season of loss and difficulty. Remaining faithful in the midst of godliness when hope seems lost believing when it appears hopeless preaching the peace of christ in a violent world i, I don't know i couldn't land on one that captured this but but i think it's important that, that you feel what he is feeling right now because it's a very human thing to experience it's a very real and honest it's an honest thing to experience when we are Reading scripture and, and, and reading of, of the salvation for the earth, of peace to all mankind. And then you look at the news and you say, where? Are you talking about a different earth? My goodness, I don't know what, what's going on here. Or how many of you have stood in this room and were singing worship songs? And as your mouth is singing them, because it's Sunday morning, your head is saying, I don't know if I believe that. Whether you're experiencing with anger with God or resentment towards God or 
what he has brought in your life at times, or whether you're struggling with doubt and you're, you're singing these songs with everyone else because you're supposed to because it's Sunday, but your heart's not in it and it feels like a lie. This is what he's experiencing. Now what I want to do and I'm hoping to do, what I'm hoping we experience is how does he get to that last verse from the previous one? He doesn't clue us in on that. He feels like these carols of peace on earth are a lie, and then yet suddenly they just break through to him and he experiences this grace where he still sees God at work bringing peace in this earth. But how does he get there? And how can we get there when we are going through times or seasons of despair, yet hearing the same messages of hope? You know, as we talk about the word peace, we've talked about this before, but I think it's worth bringing up again, is the idea of defining it. And it's, the, it's one of the Jewish words that you all know already. What is it? I'm hearing it. Not confident. Shalom. There you go. Yeah, it's the word shalom or hail in Greek. Uh, and uh, it's, it's interesting. We always define that as peace. But I think in our minds, we think of peace as the absence of war. Right? We think of peace as no one's fighting. We've all gone to our separate corners. But it's a very, very shallow definition. Shalom means wholeness, completeness, something which is complex with lots of pieces that is in a state of completeness. You can put up this picture of this, of this stone wall, right? Oh, it's kind of small. But what do your eyes instantly go to? The whole. We all see that one stone missing, right? And shalom is this idea of that stone, that very stone being returned, being grouted in there, and it is repaired. And this wall experiences wholeness, completeness. It experiences shalom for the first time. If you've ever, uh, we're coming up to Christmas season, Lego season, right? You've put together your Legos and you get to the end and you're missing that piece. Woo! <laughs> right? I was thinking, until you find it the next morning, early in the morning, you step on it. But um, I was thinking about this idea of, uh, let's say you're doing a thousand piece puzzle and you you can't find one piece. Now, technically, that's 0.01% of the puzzle. Are you 99.99% satisfied? Mm -mm. Nope, you kind of wish that you never started it, right? <laughs> that is the experience of, of shalom. It is this completeness, this restoration to the way things should be. This wholeness experience. And the ultimate image in Scripture, uh, in, in really the Hebrew prophets, is that this complex situation that's made whole is society, is life, is creation. They see the world in disorder and they're saying it'll take a good God to put it back in order, to restore it to wholeness. Uh, let me just pull a couple excerpts from some of the prophets that you will, you will understand and see this. Uh, from Job, it says, You shall know that your tent is in peace, is in shalom, and you shall inspect the fold, when you inspect the fold of your tent and find nothing missing. Sorry, this is more of a definition. But when, when, when everything's as it should be, nothing's missing, nothing's broken. Uh, in Exodus, it says, If your animal accidentally damages someone else's property, you shall loan them by paying them back. And in Proverbs, it says, what a man's, uh, when, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies at peace with him. And it's not just uh, uh, not fighting, it, it's, it's cohabitating, it's being neighbors again, it is, it is living in peace. Let me read up some, bring up some of these uh, prophecies, and you'll see their hope for shalom for this world. And when they would say shalom as a greeting, that's the way they're bringing this back up in their language. They're trying to remind everyone of what they are hoping in. 
It says uh, in Isaiah 11, 6-9, the wolf, and the, uh, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. Listen to these last part. This part right here. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For, why? Why is this not happening? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as much as the waters cover the sea. That's interesting. It's interesting, I get this, this poetic, beautiful vision of a world without uh, destruction or, or, or harm. It's interesting here that they're saying that this will be made possible when the entire earth is filled, knows God intimately. And not just knowledge, but knowledge that transforms. Isaiah 2.4, he shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They, will, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their, spe their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Why don't they have to learn war anymore? Because it's not necessary anymore. Because there's not scarcity. There is enough water, there is enough food, there is enough energy, there is peace. And so their tools, these swords, well, that, that, that iron would make better use as a plowshare than it would as a sword. I have no use for it. These, this is their, their peace that they are hoping for. I found this quote from a guy named Cornelius Plantinga. My goodness. But no, uh, not the way it's supposed to be. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The full flourishing of human life in all aspects as God intended it to be at creation. And who will usher in this new age of this prophetic peace? Well, that prophecy comes from Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And on the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Uh, biblical commentator Walter Brueggemann said, It is profound and disturbing to discover that this remarkable religious vision of true peace for the entire world to discover this remarkable religious vision will have to be actualized in the civil community. It's one thing to say, oh, isn't that nice? But this commentator is saying, no, 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 no. This isn't just fluff to make you feel better. This is our actual hope that we are praying that God brings to this earth. And he's saying, it is shocking to realize that that would actually have to come about in a real human society, in a real world. There's a, a passage in the, in the Bible where a man uh, asks Christ for healing in a situation, and, and Jesus said to you, if you believe, and he said, I believe, help me in my unbelief. That's kind of, think of where I am in terms of world peace in this. I believe that God will bring peace to this world, but I see a lot of things every day, or I see a lot of things in the news that make me doubt that, and God, I need you to help me see that. 
to bring your peace to the forefront of my heart. So Longfellow never tells us how to get to that last verse from the one before it, how he traversed it, but when things look so bleak. You know, I was trying to process this song. I was trying to figure out how to, how to teach this song. And, and Ryan gave me an incredible insight. He said, how offenses, offensive would that have been to the people who heard it? To a people under Roman occupation, under oppression, whose lives are daily in distress because of this, this foreign empire. I mean, shortly after Jesus' birth, there is a local genocide. Jesus and his family flee as political refugees out of the country, out of the promised land of God, back to Egypt. And thinking about this, how offensive would that almost appear to those who are in that story and hear that, congratulations, peace on earth is coming. You know, I don't know if you've ever been with someone who's like a VIP. Um, I had one experience like that. It was uh, when I was living in San Diego, I was close with his family, and um, and they invited us to come snowboarding with them in Tahoe. Awesome. They gave me a plane ticket. I said, even better. You know, that's great. And then I get off the plane and there's a limo, a limo with a sign, the guy with the sign, you know, stretch limo for me, one person back there. And then we go there and we're staying in this incredible penthouse and every day of this, of this hotel. And I found out later, uh, there's a bit of a gambling problem. We were actually at a casino. That was kind of what all made sense later. Uh, and, and why the hotel was going out of their way to really make us comfortable. And uh, we're in this penthouse, and every day we're going snowboarding, and we would usually walk like multiple blocks from our condo. No, Stretch Limo picked us up from to the hotel to take us to the, to the lifts. Crazy. Um, but we realized pretty quickly we're with someone who has some esteem here, and so we're getting the special treatment. Okay, well, if God tells you that he is going to make you pregnant and bring about the Messiah that, that everyone has waited for for millennia, you would kind of expect some special treatment. He uses a Roman tax uh, census to bring them back to the prophesied Bethlehem from Nazareth. Why not just say, hey, you're not very pregnant now. You should go there now. You should find some accommodations. You should get settled before you're eight months pregnant on a donkey. Um, and they get there, and you know we've talked about this before, but you go to your hometown, the one thing you're expecting to find is family. Why are they turned away? Why are they in a stable? Well, it's probably because they weren't married and they were pregnant and there was a lot of shame, and so they, they hid them down there. They weren't received well. It wasn't Joseph and Mary's moms holding Mary's hands. The only people who showed up were migrant workers who they did not know. Like, I don't know if that's what you want in the hospital when you have your baby. You think about the setting that he's born into. To live a life under this occupation. To be executed eventually by this occupation. And yet he is the prince of peace who's bringing peace to this world. It would seem offensive then. And I think that's important for us to remember because when we're hearing carols like this, when we're hearing uh, the promise of peace in our lives, and we say, yeah, but this world's so messed up. It was back then, too. And it reveals a lot about who God is, because I think we, we like to imagine him almost more like, um, you know, water with vinegar, that, that when God uh, is there, just every, everything that is evil just, just runs away, and yet it seems like God chooses to step into the middle of these situations. He's more of a sponge that is absorbing evil and strife and despair in this world by, by joining you in the middle of it. 
I want to bring up two things real quick before we close today. A theodicy for our minds and some direction for our hearts. Theodicy is a big theological world that, uh, word that is, trying to comp, uh, uh, is trying to figure out a good God with evil in this world. How do these two match? And there's many theologians who, who offer their theodicy of how this works. And I, I really respect that I finally found one who said uh, none is going to be the complete answer. Um, but I, I want to offer a theodicy for our minds, a brief one, and then a little bit of, of, of direction or comfort for our hearts. We would assume that God would fix evil. He would repel it, but he joins us in the middle of it. And that is so like him, because if you look from the very beginning, rather than doing things entirely by himself, the perfect actor, he chooses to incorporate us. From creation, when he has Adam and Eve help him name the animals and tend to the garden. Noah to repopulate the world. Abraham to form God's people. Moses to bring the people into relationship with him. David to organize the Hebrew religion. Christ to usher in a restored life of union with him. And the church to be the extend, uh, and the church to extend this new restored life to the entire world. I mean, think about that. Christ comes. He dies. He's resurrected. He gives the church the Holy Spirit and says, "You are my plan to bring about this new covenant and this new life to this earth." Why not just do it completely apart from us? We bring so many flaws into this mix. But this is how we choose to act in this world. He incorporates us. He joins us in the midst of this situation. And, and we're used to this. I was thinking about this. Consider a church, okay? What can a church bring you? A church can educate you in scripture. It can encourage you through fellowship. It can support you in difficult times. It can be a source of calling and a personal ministry, but it can also be an incredible source of pain. Moral failure of its leadership. Infighting between disunity. Bringing disunity. Egos inflate and turn areas of service into competition and popularity. So it's complicated. Why does God do it this way? I don't know. But his way of working in this world has always been to incorporate and to use us. Broken, sinful people. I mean, think about the Civil War. It was a Christian nation. Right now, the conflict in Russia and Ukraine, the war in Russia and Ukraine. Two Christian nations. The head of the Russian Orthodoxy is saying this is a spiritual war and that God's on their side. Do you know what the most Christian nation was by population in the early 90s? was Rwanda before the genocide. 94% actively involved in their churches. That's more than half the population. People who were in church together one week were, were killing each other the next week. So why does God even include us? Just do it without us. Sometimes it feels like we're more of a problem than, than, than a help. But this is his way of doing it. He wants to restore creation with us. You know, uh, one way to think about this, though, is it can feel, it can feel at times that, uh, that, that things are getting worse. But I was thinking about the illustration of the stock market, right? If you, if you take a day, you can say, oh, we lost money or we gained money. If you look back this past year, I can't, I can't remember where it is now. If you look back this past year, you might say, wow, we've lost money. But if you look back five years, 10 years, 20 years, and I was looking back 40 years, it has increased exponentially. And so day traders are the ones who are trying to buy and sell within the year. But most people tell you, invest, 
and forget about it and let your retirement be there when you become uh, of age. Um, and it's almost the same with our view, our perspective on this world. When we are looking to say, God, bring peace. Okay, if you look at any given day, it might seem like a downturn. This year might seem like a downturn. But as Christians, we believe, we trust, we hope that God is bringing peace to this earth and that when we step back enough, we have belief in this higher narrative that we're in the midst of. And the second is going to be direction for our hearts. I'm just being honest. I think there is no theodicy that can, tire, that can entirely make sense of evil. And more importantly, there is no maturity that will ever avoid the grief of evil in your life. There is no nugget of truth that you can hold that will make it so that you do not experience grief later. As prepared and ready as you are, a moment of grief will still rock you, will still be something that you process and have to work through. Yet there is health, discipline, and resources that can help you weather it and see that greater narrative easier. I was thinking about this when it comes to, to marriage. You can't predict your next marital fight, right? You can't, well, maybe you can't, I don't know. Um, my clothes are everywhere. I should be predicting what's coming, but you know. Usually you can't predict the next marital fight, but you can work on your communication skills as a couple. You can work on conflict resolution. You can work on um, just the general vulnerability and intimacy you feel within the relationship. To where something that would have been really difficult to talk about years ago, you're able to be at that place of vulnerability and talk through faster and more naturally. Is it still going to be hard to go through uh, you know, feelings of estrangement and go through uh, difficulties? Absolutely. But you have this tool set to help you guide through easier. I think it's the same with our faith. There's no crisis in your future that you can fully prepare for now so that it's like, yep, that person passed away and that's okay because I, I, I went through the steps earlier and I'm all, all fine. You will experience grief. However, how long does it take you to turn to God in that grief? I can still remember the first time I did this naturally and I caught myself in it halfway through where something happened and I was upset and I instantly went somewhere quiet and, and started praying to God, asking for his hand on that situation. And halfway through, I stopped and I started laughing at myself. Of like, I don't think I've ever done this before. Of in the middle of my distress, instantly turning to God. Usually it's, no, I'm going to go through my cycles uh, for days, weeks, months, whatever, being angry uh, or qu questioning God's goodness until finally I'm brought to the table. But if I have that intimacy with God, that trust in him, I can turn there more naturally. David is the best example of this. In David, we see his lament poems where he is angry at times or crying out to God quickly turn into belief and trust in God's presence. I want to read Psalms 10. If you have your Bible, uh, you're welcome to turn to that. Psalms 10, we'll read it in its entirety. It's a great example of this. We're in the middle of his lament. He's able to return to a trust in God. It'll also be up on the screen. Psalm 10. It says, Why, O Lord, do you stand off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In ignorance, the wicked persecute the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. That first sentence, Why, O Lord, do you stand off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He's starting by saying, Where are you? I want to see this, this psalm in three parts. The start, Where are you? I can't see you. Why aren't you helping? The middle big section is going to be his complaint. 
In arrogance, the wicked persecute the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they've devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of their heart, those greedy for gain and uh, curse and renounce the Lord. In their pride, in the pride of their countenance, the wicked say, God will not seek us out. All their thoughts are, there is no God. The, their ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of their sight. For their foes, they scoff at them. They think in their hearts, we shall not be moved throughout all generations. We shall not meet adversity. Their mouths are filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under their tongues are mischief and iniquity. They sit in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. They murder the innocent. Their eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. They lurk in secret like a lion, it's, it's, uh, like a lion in its covert. They lurk that they may seize the poor, that they may uh, seize the poor and drag them off in their nets. They stoop, they crouch, and all the helpless fall by their might. They think in their hearts, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Rise up, O Lord. This is the start of the third section. He has his complaint. And then he calls God to who he knows God is. Listen to this. Rise up, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why do the wicked renounce God and say in their hearts, you will not call us to account? But you do see. Indeed, you note trouble and grief that you may take it into, their hand, into your hands. The helpless commit themselves to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoers. Seek out... Uh, seek out, lost my place there. Break the arm of the evildoers, seek out their wickedness, and until you find none, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nation shall perish from his land. O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. Not God, please. Not God, will you. O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the orphan and the oppressed so that those from earth may strike terror no more. You see in his lament, he starts by saying, God, where are you? I'm in distress. He's in genuine, honest lament. He lists out his complaint. This is actually the same format as this poem. He lists out his complaint, everything that's wrong, all the injustice he's seen. And then at the end of it, he declares who God is because he believes who God is. You will bring about this justice. David knows that God will bring justice in that situation. And some of us, as I said, will be angry for months, years, before we are open to hearing God's message in there. I think your intimacy that you have, David is known as the man closest to God's own heart, that intimacy that he had allowed him to lament and get to that position of seeing God still at work. Not that everything was instantly fixed, but recognizing that God was with him in the midst of that pain. You know, uh, I was thinking about this um, as a kid, and around wintertime, we'd drive up to Mammoth, if you've ever done that, that drive. Um, and I loved it, because it was like five, six hours of uninterrupted Game Boy time, the entire drive up. It's not, okay, you know, 20 minutes. It was just, we drive sometimes in the middle of the night, and my dad said, he'd always look back, and you just see the glow on my face, you know, while everyone else was sleeping. That was my, that was my time. Um, but I always remember, knowing that we were going to the mountains to go skiing, we're going obviously to snow, and yet we drive through multiple hours of the hottest, most barren desert in our nation, right? 
And I know, I know they know where they're going. It doesn't look like it, right? And we're passing signs for Death Valley. You're like, this doesn't feel like where we find snow. Um, but we have hope. We trust that they know where they're going. Even if it doesn't look great yet. Ultimately, our hope is found in Revelation 22. This ultimate vision of when God brings peace to its fruition, to its completion. Then the the angel showed me the river of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river is the tree of life with 12 12 kinds of fruit producing uh, its fruit each month. That is, by the way, that, that's speaking to the regathering of the tribes of Israel. By Jesus' time, there's only two and a half tribes left. The rest have been scattered and lost. The regathering of them. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. We believe in that. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no light or lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. This is the ultimate vision that we hope for. The healing of the nations, the bringing of peace under the kingdom of God. And I know, like like that quote by Brueggemann, how absurd that can even sound to say in a world like ours. But that is our hope. In a second, we're gonna take communion. And uh, communion is a place, a time, a table, a setting, a place where we commit our hope. When we all take communion, we are committing that we believe that God's way, God's kingdom is at work. It's a way of participating with what Christ is doing. So as we take communion today, let that be a time where you can voice your complaints if you have them. But hopefully you can see God still at work, steering this world towards his shalom. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this world can seem anything but peaceful at times. It is so easy to end up in strife. A simple drive home can lead you to disunity with your brothers and sisters. Lord, but we believe At times, as absurd as it sounds, we believe that you are bringing this world to your peace, your shalom. That you desire the world as you created it, perfect, lacking nothing, in harmony. And Lord, I pray that you bring that to us. That we experience it and you continue to pray for your day. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. Thank you.